Welcome to Rabbi Michael Whitman's weekly podcast, Mining the Riches of the Parsha, where we discuss, using classic and modern sources, the insights of each Parsha that will make a difference in your life. Good evening and welcome to our Thursday night Parsha class, Mining the Riches of the Parsha. This week's Parsha is the Parsha of Korach. And I'd like to share with you three pieces that relate to this week's Torah portion. So, Korach rebels against Moshe and Aharon. Korach says, why should you be the leaders? Let someone else be the leaders. And he has a slogan. And the slogan is, if you're in the stone Chumash, I'm on page 820, the beginning of the parsha, Pasuk number 3, number Gimel. If you do not have the Chumash with you, don't worry about it because I'm going to read it aloud. But if you happen to have the stone Chumash, I'm on page 820, beginning of the Parsha, Pasuk number 3. And, and Korach and his followers stood up against Moshe and Aaron. They said to them, Rav Lachem, it should be enough for you. Ki chal kulam kadoshim. The entire people is holy. Ubesocham Hashem. And God is within each of us. Umaduatisnas u al kahal Hashem. Why should you be higher than anybody else? Everyone should be equal. Everyone is holy. God is within every one of us. Why should you be the leaders? Why should you be lifted up? Why should you be anything special? We're all holy. We're all special. Sounds nice, right? I mean, don't we all agree with that? Every Jew is holy. God dwells in every one of us. What was wrong with Korach, with what Korach was saying? So a number of commentators give the following answer. You may remember a few weeks ago in the Parsha, we had the Parsha of Kedoshim. And we read in the Torah, the beginning of that Parsha, Kedoshim Tihiu, become holy. Moshe speaks God's words to the Jewish people and says, become holy. And there is a huge difference between become holy and everyone is holy. Everyone is holy is in the present tense. You are perfect. You are at your destination right now. Well, how does that make you feel? Makes you feel good, right? We like to hear that we're perfect. We like to hear that we've arrived at our destination. It feels good to, fe to hear that. It's flattering. But it's wrong. Because everyone is not already holy. Uh, yes, you, you are very special. You are already holy. You're perfect. But in the general world, everyone is not already holy. Holiness, spirituality, coming closer to God is not a given. It's a goal. 
And it's a goal that demands intense, ongoing effort to observe the mitzvahs, the commandments, to overcome temptations, to make sacrifices, to evaluate one's ways and values and to make corrections where they are needed. That is what is necessary to, to become holy. Kedoshim to you. Korach, in telling us we are perfect, we are already holy, Korach flatters us. You're perfect. Moshe demands from us. Kedoshim to you, become holy. Do the work necessary to make yourself holy. And that Parsha, by the way, the Parsha, the portion that starts with the words Kedoshim Tiyu, you may remember that portion goes on to tell us the specific steps to becoming holy. All of which require a lifetime of effort. That Parsha contains numerous commandments. Respect your parents. Observe the Shabbos. Support those in need. Don't steal. Pay your workers on time. Don't say negative things about other people. Don't stand by when someone is being hurt. Love your fellow as yourself. Have the proper relations between men and women. And on and on and on. That's what it takes to become holy. Yes. Everyone has the potential for holiness and everyone has opportunities for holiness, yes. But is everyone already holy? No. And that was Korach's fundamental mistake. One rabbi commented it reminds him of the line from Gilbert and Sullivan. When everyone is somebody, then no one's anybody. And I want to share with you a very poignant example of this. This distinction between being holy versus becoming holy Listen to this example. Now these words were written by Lenore Bohm. And she writes, in its own way, a funeral, like a wedding, is also a love story. Both involve a ceremonial expression of devotion but sometimes the love displayed in funerals has been more tested and thus seems of greater depth. Now, before I go in before I go on with the quote, just for the record, let me state that I love weddings and I prefer weddings over funerals, but the point that she is going to make is a very valid point. So please listen carefully. She says, that may be why I prefer funerals to weddings. At their best, 
Funerals are exercises in truth-telling. Essence trumps appearance. Reality trumps fantasy. At a funeral, inwardness prevails. In contrast, many weddings involve pretense. One doesn't often leave a wedding asking if anything has been learned or resolved. On the other hand, it's hard to leave a funeral without looking at one's life and considering its direction. For a wedding, we use the Hebrew word kiddushin, which is connected to this phrase of kiddoshim tiyu, to become holy. Weddings are very beautiful. But they are beautiful in the sense that a wedding is the beginning of a couple's journey together through their love and intimacy towards holiness, which they have not yet reached. That's why marriage is called Kiddushin. And as much as we would like to be flattered that we are already perfect, the truth is, Korach is wrong. And like is given, life is given to us with the challenge to continuously become holy. Kedoshim Tihiyu. Okay. Uh, speaking of funerals, I once did a funeral a number of years ago. An elderly woman had passed away and I was sitting with her husband. This elderly couple had been married for many years and the husband told me the following. The husband said to me, we never had an argument throughout the 60 years of our marriage. That's what he said. 60 years, no argument. Sounds pretty good. On the surface, it sounds like they took Seriously, the lesson in our Parsha. If you look in the Stone Chumash on page 828, Pasuk number Hey near the top of the page, the Torah tells us at the end of that verse a commandment, a warning. Don't be like Korach. Korach started a rebellion. Korach started a machlokas, an argument, a controversy. Don't be like Korach. Don't engage in arguing. Don't start a machlokas. Don't rebel. Don't create controversy. If Moshe says this is what God wants, listen, accept it. Don't argue with Moshe. Lo Korach don't be like Korach, don't create arguments. It would seem 
based on that, this couple married for 60 years, they have it right. They went 60 years, married together, at least according to the report of the husband. No arguments. But that is not correct. In fact, our sages reject that interpretation of the lesson that we are to learn from the downfall of Korach in our Parsha. Our rabbis teach us in Pirkei Avos famous passage. Our rabbis say in Pirkei Avos, Kol Any argument that is for the sake of heaven, we'll define that later, Sofa In the end, it will endure. It is constructive. It is positive. But an argument that is not for the sake of heaven, we'll define that in a moment, it will not endure. It will end in destruction. It will end in terrible things happening. Then our rabbis go on to say, what is an example of a machlokas that is for the sake of heaven, that will endure, that is constructive, that is positive? This is a machlokas, the argument between Hillel and Shammai. They were two scholars during the time of the Mishnah, and they argued about many, many uh, issues, and their arguments are recorded in the Mishnah and the Talmud. What is an example of an argument that is not for the sake of, he- of heaven, that will end in destruction? This is the argument started by Korach. Notice, please, that our rabbis do not say, don't argue, because see what happened to Korach. But instead they say, don't argue like Korach, but rather you should argue like Hillel and Shammai. Now, you may be tempted to understand the difference between Korach on the one one hand and Hillel and Shammai on the other hand. Listen, Hillel and Shammai, they were scholars. They had scholarly disagreements about the details of Jewish law. They argued about which paragraph of Kiddush comes first. They argued about on the first night of Hanukkah, how many lights do you light? Do you start at one and go up to nine? Do you start at nine and go up to one? And they argued in a civil manner. They respected each other. They were calm. Their arguments were academic. I mean, you know, how upset are you going to get? You start at one and you go to nine. You start at nine, you go to one. Okay, fine. Fine, we disagree. But Korach, Korach starts a rebellion. Korach comes to Moshe and says he's not going to listen. That's dramatic. It's provocative. A showdown between Korach and Moshe and Aaron. That's what our rabbis are telling us not to do. But as long as it's calm, As long as it's respectful, it's academic, it's no problem. That's not true. That is an incorrect understanding 
of the disputes between Hillel and Shammai, and also Beis Hillel, the students of Hillel, and Beis Shammai, the students of Shammai. Hillel and Shammai argued. They yelled at each other passionately. They saw themselves when they were arguing as they were arguing over the meaning and legacy of Judaism. They saw themselves arguing over the nature of God and the nature of our relationship to God. They saw themselves as arguing over the very meaning of life. Sometimes they argued for years simply about a single verse. And in fact, the Talmud tells us, the Talmud Yerushalmi tells us, that one time they almost came to blows, to physical violence. Hillel and Shammai were no less dramatic or vociferous than Korach. They were no less loud. They were no less passionate or dramatic or angry or emotional. But our sages insist that the lesson is not don't fight. The lesson from Korach is not don't argue. The lesson is don't argue like Korach, rather argue like Hill and Shammai. What's the difference? So there are a number of scholars that give the following answer. Rabbeinu Yonah says this, the Bartanura says this, a number of others. And really, it's simply a deeper explanation of the words of Pirkei Avos that I shared with you before. There are two kinds of conflict. There's an argument for the sake of truth, and there's an argument for the sake of victory. Now, to use the language of Pirkei Avos, an argument for the sake of truth is what Pirkei Avos refers to as L'shem Shemayim for the sake of heaven, but it means for the sake of truth. An argument for the sake of victory is what Pirkei Avos calls Shalom L'shem Shemayim, not for the sake of heaven. How those words fit into that explanation, we'll leave that for another time. But here's the point. Korach wanted victory. If you look back in the Stone Chumash, page 822, in the middle of the page, Pasuk number Yud, number, number 10, Moshe says to Korach, You and your brothers and your cousins, you are already from the tribe of Levi that has been honored to serve Hashem. You also want to be the Kohen Gadol? That was one of Korach's claims. Why should Aaron be the Kohen Gadol? Let me be the Kohen Gadol. Korach wanted power. He wanted status. He wanted honor. It was not enough for him to be a Levi. I happen to be a Levi. I'm very honored to be a Levi. I don't want to be a Kohen. But Korach was a Levi. He wanted to be a Kohen. Okay. So, Korach is arguing for victory, for power. Moshe provides what seems like it would be 
a rational response to Korach's challenge. Korach is asking, why should Aharon be the Kohen Gadol? I should be the Kohen Gadol. Moshe says, we'll let God decide. God will tell us. On the same page, page 822 in the the Stone Chumash, just before that, Moshe says, here's what we're going to do. One of the roles of the Kohen Gadol is to offer the Ketores, the incense. So, Usnu Bahen Eish, Vesimu Aleim Ketores, Lifnei Hashem, Machar. Tomorrow, here's what we'll do. You and your followers will stand with a fire pan. A fire pan is like a skillet with a long handle. And you put incense in the pan and you light it so that the smoke comes up. So, Aharon will have his fire pan with his incense and you and your followers will each have your fire pan, your own fire pan and your incense and you'll light it. And tomorrow Hashem will decide. Hashem will make a sign that shows whether he chooses Aharon or he chooses Karach. But Korach wouldn't listen to that. Because Korach wasn't interested in the truth. Korach wanted power. He wanted victory. And in a machlokes that's about power and victory, both sides lose. And this is a really important lesson for every one of us. Because the one lesson that comes through clearly from this Parsha and this Shabbos, we should all learn it and review it carefully. You'll see as the narrative unfolds, what is absolutely clear is this lesson. That an argument for the sake of victory, both sides lose. Because if you win, I lose. But if I win, I also lose. Because I have been diminished through diminishing you. Clearly in this case, Moshe is right. Moshe is the victor. God himself provides the miracle that demonstrates that Moshe is victorious. And just as clearly, by the end of the Parsha, we all see that Moshe's leadership has suffered and it will continue to decline through the next several portions as a result of this rebellion, as a result of being right, because what the Machlokas was about was not about truth, it was about power. And even though Moshe won, he also lost. The opposite is true when the argument is for the sake of truth. Because when the argument is for the sake of truth, we both win. Because if I win, I win. If I lose, I also win because I wanted the truth. Being defeated by the truth is the only form of defeat that is also a victory. 
because I want the truth. I don't want to be victorious. I don't want to just be right. I want to know what the truth is. How were Hillel and Shammai different? Famous passage in the Talmud. There's a general rule in the Talmud. Whenever there's a dispute between Hillel and Shammai, and between Beis Hillel and Beis Shammai, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, in general, the rule is according to Hillel or Beis Hillel. Why? Why is Hillel's opinion and Beis Hillel's opinion almost always authoritative, accepted? Fascinating. The Talmud tells us in Masechta Erevin, the laws in accord with Beis Hillel because they studied not only their own rulings, but also those of Beis Shammai, their opponents. And because they taught the words of Beis Shammai before their own. In any discussion, they would say, this is what our opponent says, but this is what we say. And in fact, it's fascinating that when Rabbi Yehuda Levi wrote the Mishnah, I'm sorry, when Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, I apologize. Wrong era. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi edited the Mishnah when the, the style that he used to write the Mishnah and then later when the Talmud was written, almost always the opinion of Hillel is quoted first. I'm sorry. The opinion of Shammai is quoted first and then the opinion of Hillel. Why? Rabbi Yudha Nasi, the editor, wasn't Hillel or Shammai, but he wanted to incorporate this concept that Hillel followed into the style of writing of the Mishnah and the Talmud. Because Hillel and Shammai sought truth, not victory. That's the reason that Hillel listened to the other opinion first and quoted the other opinion first because they wanted to know what the truth was. I've quoted to some of you before the words of the Chazonish, who wrote in a letter, you are free to disagree with someone, but only after you have stated their opinion first to their satisfaction. Once you've stated their opinion to their satisfaction, then you have the right to disagree. Otherwise, you're not looking for truth. You're looking for victory. In the argument for the sake of truth, each side is willing, if refuted, to say, I was wrong. There is no triumphalism in victory. And there is no anger or anguish in defeat. This is a quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. The rabbis did not conclude from the Korach rebellion that argument is wrong, that leaders are entitled to unquestioning obedience, that the supreme value in Judaism should be, as it is in some faiths, submission. To the contrary, argument is the lifeblood of Judaism, so long as it is motivated by seeking truth, not power. 
The story of Korach remains the classic example of how argument can be destructive. Our rabbis wanted to teach us that it's not the arguing that's wrong. Arguing is fine. Questioning is fine. But it's got to be the arguing of Hillel and Shammai. No less vociferous. No less dramatic. But with the pursuit of truth as its goal. Permit me to share one last piece. Now this last piece will, to a certain extent, undercut or temper what I just shared with you. You know, one of the main issues that we have been dealing with, struggling with during this pandemic is the subject of minion. Ten adult Jewish men form a minion and when that group is together, everyone who joins them, we are allowed to to say not only the private prayers, but the public prayers that can only be said in the presence of a minion. And we've been struggling once the shul's closed and they're still closed, starting to open a little bit. No minion davening at home. It's very difficult not to daven with a minion. And questions have come up. Does this form a minion? Can, if you're on your balcony and I'm on my, my balcony, does that form a minion? All kinds of questions, all kinds of issues. But let's take one step back. Since minion is so much on our minds over these last months, let's take one step back and ask the question. From where do we derive that it is 10 adult Jewish males that form a minion and are then able to say the prayers that require a congregation? Fascinating. Now, the derivation, as described in the Talmud, is a little bit circuitous. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to oversimplify it. But suffice it to say that it is based on two verses. A verse that uses the word Ada, which means congregation, like the same word as Adat, Adat. Adat Yisrael, Congregation of Israel. Same word, Ada. The word Ada is used in connection with the spies. And the word Ada is used in connection with Korach and his followers. And from there, the Talmud derives that an Ada, a congregation that can form a minion, requires ten adult Jewish men. Now, that's a strange thing. Because... If you have an institution where you're gathering together to be able to praise God, to pray to God as a group, to be representing the entire Jewish people in an act of prayer and holiness and piety, how in the world would you derive it from two verses that apply, one from spies that did a terrible thing and the other from Korach who did a terrible thing? What kind of a source is that? There is a similar peculiarity later on in our Parsha. So, Korach challenges Moshe. Kol kulam kadoshim. The whole nation is holy. Why do you rise yourself up? Who says you're chosen? 
Moshe says, as I quoted to you before, we'll have a test. We'll let God demonstrate who is chosen. Aharon will take a fire pan with incense and light it. And you and your fathers, you and your followers will each take a fire pan with incense and you'll light it. And then God will perform a miracle that will demonstrate who he chooses. Okay. That's what happens. And God destroys by fire the Korach's followers. And Aharon is shown in front of everyone to be the chosen one for the role of Kohen Gadol. So the people, the followers of Korach, they're destroyed. The incense that was in their pans is burnt. But what about the fire pans? They were made out of copper. What about the fire pans? The fire pans remained. Well, what do you think we should do with the fire pans? You have 250 copper fire pans. So, on page 826 in the Stone Chumash, starting near the bottom of the page, Pasuk number 1, Vayadabra Hashem el Moshe Lamar, God says to Moshe, Tell Elazar the son of Aaron, Vayaremes amaknos vivenas reifa, gather together the 250 fire pans. We're not throwing them away, we're going to use them. What are you going to use them for? Va'asu osam rikue pachim tzipui lamizbeach. We're going to melt down the copper and we're going to use it to refinish the outside of the mizbeach, the altar. The altar was made of copper. The altar on which the sacrifices were offered was made out of copper. This, we're going to add a new layer from this melted down, these melted down uh, fire pans to renovate the altar. Now that's strange. Because you have these objects which were used as part of a rebellion. And God had to perform a miracle to demonstrate that they were wrong. And God destroyed these people. I mean, these are bad people. These are wicked people. And their action was an action of rebellion against Moshe, against Aaron, maybe against God. You want those fire pans around? You want that when people come as an act of holiness to offer a sacrifice, that when they look at the face of the altar, what they're seeing is that copper, and they remind themselves of that copper, that's something that you want to bring into the a place of holiness? Throw it away, get rid of it, burn it, bury it. Why put it in such a holy place? So there are a number of answers to this question. I want to share with you the answer that I heard from Rabbi Yaakov Luban. And he says as follows. And this is also something that is so important for us to try to assimilate and incorporate into our worldview. 
We human beings usually view things as either black or white, good or bad, kosher or treif, either one or the other. God doesn't look at things like that. God's eyesight is much more fine and God is able to detect the good even within evil deeds and evil people. Korach did something terrible. He did it because of jealousy. He did it because of a drive for power and victory as we described. But Rashi says there was also an element in Korach's campaign he wanted a larger role in serving God. That was also part of it. Maybe not the major motivation, but part of the motivation that God was able to recognize. He wanted to come closer to God. He went about it in the wrong way. He acted incorrectly. He was punished. But God at least recognizes that there is something holy to be found within Korach. Korach's followers who held the fire pans, they were wrong. They were participating in a machlokas. They were arguing with Moshe and Aaron. And they were punished. But there was also something within their motivation, they wanted to offer an offering to God. They were willing to risk their lives. Okay, maybe it was for their own personal motivation. Maybe they thought they would benefit from it. But God was able to see that they were also, also risking their lives because they wanted to serve God. Because they wanted to offer this offering. And the lesson is that God is able to see goodness even in the midst of apparent evil. Even within the spies and with Korach and within his followers, less than blameless individuals. But there is still room to find something positive. Yes, there are people who are purely evil and wicked. But the lesson that we are to learn from this covering of the altar is that most people are very complex. People do things for a variety of motivations and there can be lightness and darkness intermingled. And particularly when we gather to pray and form a minion, in order to come closer to God. That is the moment when it is particularly important that no one look down upon anyone else as being unqualified or unworthy of helping to create this group that together will come closer to God and praise God and pray to God. Because God sees the complexity of every one of us. It's a tremendous lesson 
God teaches us. Every Jew remembered every time that he or she looked at the Mizbeach at the altar and they saw that copper. They saw something which had an element of evil in it, but also an element of goodness in it. That's the lesson that we are to learn. Human beings are complex. It's not always right or wrong. More often, there are shades of gray. My friends, thank you very much. I want to wish you a wonderful night. Have a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon.